Good evening. We're doing something a little different tonight, so I want to introduce my friend, Joaquin Garcia. He's come up. He pastors a church in Whittier called Disciple Church, and he planted that church a handful of years ago and has been on a, if you will, similar trajectory as I've been on. We both went to Talbot School of Theology together. Joaquin's younger, though, and hasn't completed the Reformation, so he's still a Baptist, but there's always time. It's actually, he's one of my favorite pastors in the sense that we've become really good friends over the last couple of years. One of those pastors where we met up through a variety of other friendships we all have and connections, and and as soon as we did, we, we felt like we knew each other right out of the gate, and we've been really thankful to serve in some ways together to encourage each other, text and call each other, and he comes up to our pastor's fellowship. And so we wanted the opportunity as to have some of our pastor's fellowship guys come and preach and then have the opportunity for them to tell us what things we can pray for for their family and their church and then to pray for them while they're here. So we're trying to do some of that. So Joaquin is here for that purpose. And so Joaquin, if you want to come up, it'd be great. Good evening. I'm not as tall as Chad, so I have to lower the mic some. Greetings from Whittier. I was hitting traffic on the way up here, but so glad to be here with you. I've come to Bakersfield several times and have already been majorly blessed by your specific congregation through Chad, through your pastors, through your prayers. I'm very aware. I've been told of how you guys have prayed for different congregations and we're one of them and we want to say thank you so much for that it's it's such a blessing and i already feel there's this warm love for you as well because we've prayed for you in our church several times and different events that have happened it's a wonderful thing when god's church can lift each other up encourage one another from afar and when we have christ in common it's a blessing so i am grateful to be here i'm going to shift to our time in the word and so if you have your copy of the scriptures if you can Pull that out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 this evening. Matthew chapter 25. And we'll be in verses 14 through 30. A commonly known passage in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus' teachings called the Parable of the Talents. So I'm going to read from God's word, then we'll have a time of prayer. So this is God's word as taken from Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, master, you've delivered to me two talents here. I have made you two talents more. 
And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what is my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Would you bow with me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Lord, in this time in our lives and in the reading, preaching of your word, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds through the work of your spirit to understand what it is you have for us to know and learn about you and about your kingdom. And so, Lord, please work in us deeply by this power of your spirit, and may you get all the glory for it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I just have so much pleasure and joy in my heart to be here with you and to bring God's word to you. This is a passage that has been a blessing to me and to many. I'm sure if you've been around the church, you may have heard of the parable of the talents. You may be familiar with the story. I hope you are because that means you know God's word, at least parts of it that are helpful, parts of it that will teach us things about Christ and how we are to live. A little bit about this passage in terms of its context. This is the third of three parables at the very end of chapter 24 and 25 in Matthew's Olivet Discourse, the last of five major teaching sections in the book where Jesus is talking, in this case, about his second coming. What will it be like for Jesus when he comes back in glory? And so he uses often parables to talk about the kingdom. In chapter 13, we see clearly Jesus speaking about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he uses a parable here. But this is the third of three in this section. The faithful and wicked servant is a a parable, the parable of the ten virgins, and now the parable of the talents. And all of them are asking a very similar question. They're all wondering, and what Jesus is teaching is, what are we to learn about how to live ready? How to live ready for Jesus to come back in glory in his second coming. What are we supposed to learn specifically from this parable, from the parable of the talents? And so we're going to be seeking to answer this question tonight as this is taken from the scriptures. And so we'll be having three points to see what the scripture teaches us. So the first is this. What are we to learn about being ready, living, prepared for Christ to come back? Whenever that will be, how should we be ready? The first point is this. We must faithfully steward our lives, seeking to increase what God has entrusted to us. We must faithfully steward. That means we must take care of God's property, meaning we are not the owners of this life and this world. It is God's world, and we are his managers. We are to rule for him, his property, and not only just care for it, 
to make sure it's okay. We are to increase it. We are to grow it through faithful stewardship, whatever he has entrusted to us. So let's dive more into this passage, as I'm sure you'll be blessed by God's word. Going back into verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Let me just pause here for a second. The word in the original for servants is actually slave. This is a very interesting story because usually masters don't entrust their slaves with all their property. They may entrust servants in terms of employees, but that word is a different word. This word is a slave. And so we're actually already getting some inkling of an idea of what this master is like. He is a generous master. He's a trusting master. And he has property that he wants to be dealt with in a certain way. What did he do? He gave, to verse 15, he gave five talents to one, to another two talents. And according to each ability, he gave five, he gave two, and he gave one, and then he went away. Now, maybe you've heard some a bit about what a talent is. When we think of talents, often we think of an ability. We think of a person who is talented. But actually, a talent in this case is not an ability. It's actually a measure of uh, weight. In fact, a talent would have been 30 kilograms of metal. And it would have been one of, if not the largest measurement that they had available to them. Maybe something like a ton. You know, oh, several tonnage. It was a large amount. And so this is... The owner is giving large amounts of his property of value. In fact, how much would this be? This would be just an extravagant amount of property. If we compare it to today's prices, like to the price of gold, per se, precious metals, just checked it not too long ago, it's roughly $1,950 per ounce. One talent at that price would be over $2 million. Five talents would be over $10 million, and 10 talents would be over $20 million. This is quite a bit of money. This is not some small amount. And this shows you this is a very rich master who has a lot of things, and he's entrusting his property to his slaves. An important thing to understand here about what we're to learn. We talked about that we are to faithfully steward what God has entrusted to us, seeking to increase it. Because of the word talented, we often might think that, oh, well, then, Whatever gifts or abilities we have is what is in play here. And it's true that we are to have gifts and abilities, and we are to use those. But I appreciate this quote from R.T. France when describing this particular passage. He says, it's more about the amount of responsibility that one has than their ability. Although ability is connected to it, it's more about responsibility. So let me read this here. It says, it is more about responsibility than natural endowment. Though the degree of responsibility given to each depends on their natural ability, yes, they represent not the natural gifts and aptitudes which everyone has, but the specific privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven and the responsibilities they entail. I think this is important for us to know as we seek to understand this passage and seek to apply it to our lives. We are to steward whatever God has given to us to be responsible over, specifically for enlarging his kingdom. We are to increase what God has given us. Let me read from 16 and 17 where it says that. In 16 it says, And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more. He increased what he had. 
so also the one who had two talents made two talents more. There's an expectation of quick increasing, or maybe not quick, working and laboring to increase what the master had given him. And what we see as a negative example here in verse 18 is that the one hid what he was entrusted with in the ground. Verse 18 says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. You know, this isn't the first time that our Lord has spoken in parables. It's not the first time he's spoken to his disciples, particularly about responsibility. This is a common teaching, and in just Luke 12, 48, it's a clear example of this. To everyone to whom much was given, to him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is how it works. Christ, in his kingship, gives us responsibilities and requires of us the good stewardship of our lives for his kingdom, and he demands the more. Is he a harsh master because of that? No, we're going to see he's actually a very generous master, kind master, and we are to understand him rightly. But let's, for a moment here, seek to answer the question, what exactly does it mean, though, to work to increase God's kingdom? If this parable is about, okay, how do I live ready for Christ to come back? How do I live until he comes? And the answer is, be a faithful steward with what he's given you. Increase the kingdom according to your responsibilities. What does that mean? How do we maybe define that even more clearly? Well, there's too many verses to go through kind of a full kingdom theology here, but I do think we can get help quickly. Um, Just look at the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, it talks about the kingdom of God, and we get some real clear clues here how, how we're to pray. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come. These are kingdom parables. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe you've heard the kingdom of God is where the rule and reign of, of God is. And where his rule and reign is where his will is done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I appreciate the Westminster Shorter Catechism here in question 103. I think it can help us even further understand this. The question of what do we pray for in the third petition, which is what we just read in Matthew 16, third petition of the Lord's Prayer. This answer, I believe, is helpful. It says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. I was blessed to take the angel class with Brother James Dolezal, and we talked about a lot of things in regards to what angels are like. Boy, did we talk about that. That was a fascinating class. But one of the things that angels are like is that they are quick. They are swift. They were like in the sense that they don't deliberate and think about things. They're actually, foom, here and there. In fact, the flapping of wings metaphorical, if you will, because they don't actually have bodies, really to symbolize their quickness, their swiftness. They're quick and zealous to do the work of God. They're not thinking or slow. No, they're quick and ready. In fact, I'm going to put forward to you this description of what it means. What does it actually mean to increase the kingdom of God? I think it means that we personally, seeking to quickly and fully and joyfully obey King Jesus in all areas of our life and help others to do the same. 
This is what it means to increase the kingdom of God. This is where the rule and the reign of Christ will be. Where we submit to his law. We submit to his word. We submit to his will. We're committed to his covenant. And we are personally seeking to do that quickly, fully, joyfully. Is this not the picture that we have of the faithful slaves? What do they do when the master comes back? They run to the master. And they say, master, I've been working for you. I have something to offer you because I quickly and fully and joyfully want to submit myself to you and your will and do whatever it is you've called me to. And I want to be a blessing to others so that they may do the same. To be kingdom citizens and to increase the kingdom is to increase the places where God's glory is being given to him in our lives, in our families' lives, and those around us. And this is consistent with what the scriptures say in other places. Ephesians 2, it says that we are created for good works. It says, for we are the workmanship of Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are the kingdom works. And so what are we supposed to be doing in these kingdom works? We're supposed to be doing them in the church, of course, in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7 says, now there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's varieties of activities, but the same God. Even notice the Trinitarian, the spirit, Lord Jesus and God. Trinitarian God that we serve, who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, quickly, fully, joyfully, and do that in and amongst the church in and amongst his bride, the covenanted people. We also see this in Galatians 6 clearly. So then, as we have opportunity, which God gives us the opportunity beforehand, he has these good works for us. He says, let us do good to everyone, and especially those of the household of faith. God has entrusted to us lives, responsibilities, that we may love him, obey him, and help others to do the same. It's not only inside the church, though. It's also outside the church. We are to seek that God would be glorified and to help people come into the church. Matthew 5, starting in 14, Jesus clearly says, You are the light of the world, you kingdom citizens, you disciples. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your lights shine before others. So that they may see your good works. Yes, we must do good works. But do it in a way that is distinctly Christian. And so that people have a result of giving God glory. How does that not work unless we are doing things in the name of Jesus Christ. As Christians seeking to be a blessing to them. And pointing them to our good God. And saying he's worthy. He's worthy of my life. Our life. He is worthy of serving with all that I have. First Peter 2 says... Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? When Christ visits us, when he comes again, these Gentiles, these evildoers, these ones who are once far off from God will actually receive Christ when he comes again and will be brought near as they are brought into the kingdom of God through faith. Praise the Lord that we can increase the kingdom of God through submitting to his reign 
and helping others to do the same. So let's ask some questions, make it personal, can we? Who or what has God entrusted to you to increase for him until he returns? What has God given to you in your life specifically? What has he entrusted? Who or what? I think it would be helpful to just think through that for a moment. Who might God have placed in our lives? Well, he's given everyone some form of family. In fact, for all the children in the room right now, I gladly speak to you. I have my own children. God has given you, entrusting you with responsibility. He's given you parents. He's given you siblings. He's given you grandparents. He's given you schoolmates, classmates, teammates. If you name the name of Christ, you too can be have an impact to love and serve Lord Jesus. By faith, you can follow Jesus and you can increase what God has given to you. Not only that, parents to their children or siblings to one another, grandparents to grandchildren, uncles, aunts, cousins, that's clearly just family connections, but there's also other people that God has put in our life, co-workers, church members, church officers, neighbors, even strangers, people that God has providentially put on our path for us to know or love or bless in that moment, just like the story of the Good Samaritan. God providentially places people on our path for us to notice and to love and to serve. Who are those people in your life? How has God entrusted you to care for, to obey, to glorify God? in and around them and to help them to do the same. How about what? Ongoing things in our life. What has he given us? Things that we can do. How about praying? We are to pray for one another daily. Pray for the Lord. We are to pray the Lord's prayer, right? As a model, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is your name. We are falling in line with Christ and with his kingdom, having our hearts be stirred by his word through the working of his spirit. We do that ongoing, but we also do that as needed. As needs come up amongst our, our family, our friends, our coworkers, we can be praying. We can encourage one another in the Lord. We can give tithes and offerings to the work of the Lord and special offerings as needed. I, I've heard about the generosity of this church and what a blessing you are to people in need. What a blessing you are to kingdom work. Praise God for that. Praise God for your generosity. There's investing, there's teaching, there's supplying, there's serving, there's organizing, there's feeding, there's cleaning, there's constructing, there's visiting, and it goes on and on. There are many things we can do to serve the Lord, to increase the impact of his gospel by being a gospel-filled people, filled with the Spirit, filled with his good news on our lips, filled with kind hearts to give. So how are we to live ready for his return? We're to be a people who are actively understanding what it is that God has given to us and saying, whatever you want, Lord, I'd love, 
I want to work for you. I want to increase it. I want other people. I personally want to follow you. I personally want to quickly obey you. I want to fully obey you. Why? Because I love you and I trust you. I have my faith in you and you alone for my salvation. I'm not seeking to work to get saved because I believe in Christ and his gospel. Because I am saved, I love you, Lord. And I'm grateful for you. I'll do whatever you want. Give me more that I can steward more. Or no, Lord, don't give me too much. I want to do a good job with whatever I have now. May I be content with whatever it is. And you give me what you have for me. You put those people in my life. You give me my stewardship. I don't trust myself as much as I should. I trust you, Lord. Let me be content in whatever you've given. Well, that's the first thing we're to learn from this passage. Let's look at another lesson here. What are we to learn on how to live ready? Our second point is this, is that Christ, good news, Christ will richly reward those who are faithful to increase what they've been entrusted with. It's not just a work. It's not just a responsibility. There's a blessing. There's a blessing in the work, and there's a blessing as a fruit of the work. What a good God we have. Did you know that us working for God does not necessitate us getting rewarded by God? That just being him being the creator and us being the creature does not necessitate us getting rewarded. We only must give him what we owe him. Our complete love, joy, adoration, loyalty. That is what it means to be a creature to the creator. But he is so good and so kind. It pleases him to give and to give and to give and to give. This good, generous God who owns all things. So let's see how this story progresses. Starting in verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants, the slaves, came and settled accounts. It was time. Account was with them. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Saying, Master, You deliver to me five talents. I have made five talents more. Notice the quick eagerness with which he brings them forward. And verse 21, what did the master do? He didn't say, that's right, you did it. Only doing what you were told, huh? Well, at least you're good enough for that. No, 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 that's not the master. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you. Good job. You did it. You were faithful. You've been faithful over a little. Wait, over a little? How rich is this master? How much does he actually own? If this exorbitant, extreme amount is considered a little in the master's eyes, what do we have to look forward to in the next life? Abundance upon abundance. He says, you've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. And verse 22 He who also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. Notice faithfulness. Whether it's five talents or two talents, there's an eagerness. It doesn't matter. There's not really a comparison game here. This isn't a covetousness of, you gave him five talents, you gave me two talents. The two-talent servant is saying, yeah, this is what you gave me. Here's what I got you back, Lord. A good reminder and encouragement That we should not be looking side to side and comparing what we've been given, but just being faithful with what we've been giving and encourage each other to do what they can do with what they've been given to be a blessing and encouragement to all of the master's servants. 
no matter what station they're in, no matter how old they are, no matter what their net worth is, or their, how many letters they have behind their name. No, we, if we are Christ's, then what we've been given is enough for us to steward to him. So being content with that. And what does the master say in verse 23? He says, master said to him, the exact same thing he said to the other slave. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not good, you did pretty good with what you had, wasn't the same as the other. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. What does he say? Enter into the joy of your master. Notice this master is a master of giving and sharing, and it's his heart to give and to share. He is not stingy or miserly. In fact, we're going to see in the next slave that he has misunderstood the master. He has wrongly taken stock of the master, and it actually affected his whole life. We must have a good and right theology of God so that we can have a good practice of living before him. We must understand who our God is in order to rightly worship. And so this good, loving, gracious, generous, joy-filled God looking to share that joy and generosity with his slaves, he loves to reward them. It's not the only time we see this. No, other places in Matthew, just previous, the chapter before, what does Jesus say here? In another time, in another parable, in chapter 24, 46 to 47, he says, Blessed is that servant to whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. What you do now is just a shadow of the things to come. How are we supposed to live waiting for Christ? We all have so many days. We don't know how many days we have, right? Some will live shorter lives. Some will live longer lives. Some will live more healthy lives. Some will live less. We don't know. But how are we supposed to live? Not how long. How are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live submitted, joyful, responsible stewarding lives who are looking forward to being a blessing and being blessed. In fact, Luke 6 gives us a, an encouragement, maybe an encouragement we don't want, but it's a, it's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful blessing. Remember, we're to encourage, we're to have quick, full, joyful obedience in our own lives. That includes opening up our mouths and talking boldly about Christ and about his righteousness and the need for people to follow that, the need for people to understand who God is. Well, what happens when we do that and people don't like it? Luke 6 says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. They call you all kinds of things on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Some of us in our kingdom responsibilities will be ridiculed, will be mocked, will be spat upon. We will lose friendships, relationships, family members, prestige, job, promotions, opportunities, Because we are standing up for the name of Christ, we are calling people to Christ and to his righteousness. And we're not doing it to be man-pleasers. We're doing it to be God-pleasers. And so what have you been 
given to steward, it may be courage and boldness in the moment. Obviously, we're not supposed to be jerks for Jesus, but we are supposed to stand for truth. We are supposed to call people to righteousness, call people to repentance, and to love God with all their heart, soul, and their mind, and their strength, to look to Jesus, for he is the one whom we're supposed to throw ourselves onto. People will hate us for that. But praise the Lord, because that includes faithfulness. That's what our master is looking for, love, obedience to him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, let me ask another question. What are your motivations for your obedience? Are pleasing Christ and receiving his rewards motivating your daily faithfulness? Why do you do what you do? An important question. God sees the heart. He knows the intimate parts of our soul. He knows why we do what we do. Do we know why we do what we do? The scriptures are like a mirror that can really show us. When we read, when we look in the word, they can show us our lives. They can show us by his law who we truly are, what is truly righteous. Are we coveting? Are we doing things for self-aggrandizement? Are we trying to build our own name, build our own fame? Are we doing things to please others just to get them off of our back? Are we doing this that other people will think we're fine? No, no, no. Look at these wonderful motivations that we have. Christ, our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord, who is generous, who lived a perfect life, one that we could not live, have not lived. He lived for us. And he shares that life with us. And he not only gives us his life, he dies our death. He goes to the cross, taking the pain and the shame that we deserved. Christ loved us first. And this motivates our faith and our obedience in him to see the beauty of Christ and saying, wow, he loved me so much. God loves the world so much. He sent his son into the world. They may save sinners like us if we believe in him. It's not only that he saved us. I mean, he's telling us, guys, it's worth it to follow me. It's worth it. Yes, you will have short-term, temporary pain in this life. But you will have long-term, blessed, eternal satisfaction in our Lord because we will be united to him forever in heaven. It's a wonderful thing. What motivates your faithfulness? Is it true motivation? Is it godly motivation? Or is it some other type? I love praying prayers from the scriptures that's been a a blessing to be able to use just straight out of the scriptures and one of the main prayers that have been such a treasure to me is Paul's prayer to the Colossians and what he prays for them is just so spot on I mean it just hits so much of our lives Colossians 1 9 through 11 it says and so from the day we've heard we've not ceased to pray for you what does he pray asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will you may know God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not earthly, manly, selfish wisdom, God's wisdom, that you'd know the truth, the actual truth, as he runs the world, as what he sees as successful. I want you to know the reality of God's world and in the spirit, his righteousness and wisdom. Why? Just so that you could have big heads? You put your head in a shopping cart and push it around because you know so much? No. 
so that we can live our lives. We can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That our lives, like the third commandment, bearing the name of God, would shine forth a worthy display of what it means to have the name of God on us. That you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing much fruit. Walking fully pleasing to him means we will be bearing good works of the gospel, good works of the kingdom. We're not just burying what he's given us. No, 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 we're bearing fruit. In what he's given us, every good work and increasing in the knowledge of our God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. This is a Holy Spirit endeavor. We are to be spirit led. And this is according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Living a life until Christ comes requires endurance. It requires patience. It requires continuing To go forward, trusting the Lord, step by step, moment by moment, you get knocked down, you put your arms out to God and pray again and again and say, he'll help me, help me again, Lord, help me again, be faithful for what you've given me, for raising these kids, for spending the money in a way that would be helpful to your gospel kingdom, investing in long-term missions, frontier pioneering missionaries. And all other kinds of kingdom work, all other kinds of kingdom responsibilities. Well, how are we supposed to live ready for Christ? It's to know that we must steward this life, all the responsibilities he's given us, and not just steward them, increase them. What else? Also to know that we can be encouraged that if we do that, our Lord, our master, he will richly reward us. What we consider little here. It's going to be much more in the next life. What else? What's our last point? How are we supposed to live ready for Christ before he comes back? It's this. We must also be aware and warned of this passage that Christ will also eternally punish those wicked and slothful who waste what they are entrusted with. It's not just all good news. There's a warning embedded in this passage. A warning to those who misunderstand their work, misunderstand their place and their station, misunderstand their God and their king. Let's see in verse 24. Verse 24, it says, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Notice, not the quick, not the full, not the joyful obedience, but the shrewd, ah, you're a mean guy. So uh, he doesn't know actually the master correctly. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, meaning you're just ruthless. He doesn't know the master. He's not ruthless. He's generous. He's wonderful. He's kind. Verse 25, so I was afraid. Notice, he went trusting the master. He went joyfully obeying the master. He was afraid of the master. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here. Have what is yours. You know, it's interesting. Like the other two slaves, they came, talents in hand, going, Lord, have it. It's yours. But their yours was like, let me offer this up to you. Where this one was more of a like, hey, it was in the ground. Here it is. There wasn't an understanding of our God, of our king. And there was a disdain and a fear Not a righteous fear, an unrighteous, ungodly 
fear, a wrong kind of fear. But look what the master says, verse 26. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You know that I reaped. He's actually going to say, you were wrong about me, but you're not even being consistent with your own understanding of me. Oh, you thought this about me? You knew that I reap where I have not sown or gather where I scattered no seed? That's what you thought of me? Then you ought to have invested my money. You didn't even do what was consistent with your own wrong views with me. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. I mean, at least give me some meager percentage if that's what you think of me. And he says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. You know, this is an important warning for us. There are people in the church who profess faith but do not truly have faith. They profess it, but they don't possess it. And there are people who think there will be in the kingdom when he comes back, but their fruit of their life will actually in the end show that they are not believing in who God truly is and what God has called them to. This is a warning for us. There are several warnings in the scripture, but not to be duped by ourselves or duped thinking that we're in when we're not. Matthew 7, a very clear passage saying, you know, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these mighty things and works in your name, prophesy in your name, mighty works in your name? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. This is a part of what it means to live ready. It means actually knowing our God, knowing him by faith, knowing him by love, by trust, knowing him by the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can't earn or deserve this eternal life that he offers us. It's only available in Christ Jesus. And not to throw ourselves at appeasing God, to throw ourselves at adoring God and loving him deeply from the heart. Appreciated this quote from Spurgeon. He talks about the fear of this particular slave. He says, he seemed to speak as though this was all that could be rightly expected of him, meaning he thought this is all it could be. Yet he was evidently not satisfied with himself, for he said, I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. See how fear may become the mother of presumption? Faith in God begets holy fear, but servile fear is the parent of doubt, which in its turn has a family of unbelieving rebels. We must have a true faith in our God. We must know who he truly is, and we must have a godly fear seeking to please him. I'm afraid of not pleasing him, not because he's seeking to be harsh with me, but because he is so worthy, he is so lovely, he is so kind, he's so generous, and what he has offered me is beyond what I deserve. And so I don't want to spurn that generosity. I want to, in gratitude, say, Lord, entrust me whatever you think I can handle so I can bless you. You aren't blessed by me. You you are the receiver of nothing. We can't increase God in any way. We can't add to his glory, of course, but we seek to honor his name. We seek to glorify him. And so verse 29 finishes our text, 29 and 30. For to everyone who has, more will be given. What an amazing kingdom dynamic here. What you have, if you truly have it, If you have Christ and you have his spirit and you have his church and you have his word, you're going to get more and more and more 
This is what God is like. He's a giving God, generous God. He's not a stingy God. But notice the difference if you're not with the Lord. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this section, there are several times where our Lord calls to the reality of hell and says, this is a real thing. It's a warning. Believe in the true Christ, the true God, the true gospel, living a true life of true faith. If you do, you will be so blessed. It won't be an easy life. Oh, but it will be a blessed life. But don't be duped. You can't be in the kingdom of God and kind of fool your way through. No, he's looking for true faith. Good news. True faith is available in Jesus Christ. He has offered himself, his life and his blood. And he says, believe in me. I will make you fishers of men. Believe in me. I will forgive your sins. Believe in me. I will change your life. It's a wonderful, wonderful offer of the gospel. So how are we to do this? Lord knows, not in our own strength. We are not to be white-knuckling our lives, going, i got to do better, i got to do better. Sometimes we can have a, a tyranny of perfectionism, tyranny of, if I could just get a little bit more out of this. Well, yes, we want to maximize God's glory, but we must do it by his strength by his power, in his time, in his way. Sometimes God puts us on the sidelines and the way that we are to be entrusted with is through patience, through endurance, through silence. It's not flashy or showy always, but it is always trusting. So let me encourage us, look to Christ. Look to his life. Look to his obedience. He is the one. He is the servant. He's the servant of God who has done things just right. And we're to look to him and learn from him, partner with him, being strengthened by his spirit. Let me read John 6, looking to our Lord. It says, For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, Jesus said, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will make sure all things happen according to his Father's will. He will rightly, perfectly, specifically accomplish all that God has. Trust in Christ and his work. And if you're working in the kingdom and you need joy, look to Christ. He worked for the Lord. His obedience was with joy. Even the man of sorrows, even walking to the cross, even through betrayal of his family, betrayal of his closest companions and followers, he did this filled with joy. Hebrews 12. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What has Christ given you to steward for him that he may get more glory? Let's look to Christ and follow him. Would you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word that teaches us, for your spirit that illuminates our 
minds and our hearts and strengthens our inner man in order to do these things. We thank you for, Lord, those teachers before us and those who have discipled us in the faith so that we may learn what it looks like to be a faithful servant. Lord, we are discipled by Christ, his followers, but we're discipled by his other disciples. So, Lord, may this church be faithful, faithful to whatever it is you've given them and their families in their work, in this church, in the gospel missionary works you have for them. May they steward them well, quickly, fully, and with joy. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.